Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I'm humbled by what has happened and I renew my wholehearted apology for the gathering in the cabinet room on the 19th of June 2020. I can't say whether he'll be prime minister going into 2023, but I don't think that he will lead the party into the next general election. Why does the prime minister think everybody else's actions have consequences except his own? You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Ewan Potts. Good afternoon, I'm Stephen Carroll. Coming up on today's programme, we speak to Lord MP from the Ulster Unionist Party about the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. Plus, uh, we'll also be speaking to uh, Bloomberg Economics' chief European economist on their research on public sector pay rises in the UK and what they might cost the government. But first, we are taking you through what the events in Parliament yesterday where MPs passed a bill which proposes to scrap parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol. The bill now moving to the next stage of the parliamentary process after clearing the second reading by 74 votes. Well, more than 70 Conservative MPs either abstained or were excused from voting on it. Among them was Boris Johnson's predecessor, Theresa May, who believes that the bill breaks international law. Here's what the former Prime Minister had to say to MPs. I actually started off by asking myself three questions. Do I consider this to be legal under international law? Second, will it achieve its aims? And third, does it at least maintain the standing of the United Kingdom in the eyes of the world? And my answer to all three of those questions is no. Now, the bill will give ministers powers to override parts of the UK's Brexit deal with the European Union. The EU has warned that it will look at, quote, all options if the bill is adopted, including suspending the post-Brexit trade deal. Foreign Secretary Liz Truss says the government has to take action to restore Northern Ireland's administration. Northern Ireland has been without a devolved government since February, due specifically to the protocol, at a time of major global economic challenges. Therefore, it is the duty of this government to act now to enable a plan for restored local government to begin. Well, the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party in Northern Ireland, has been boycotting the government in Stormont over its objections to the protocol. That's despite a majority of MLAs in the Assembly supporting the arrangements. Speaking before yesterday's vote, DUP leader Geoffrey Donaldson said that they would consider what steps to take. Well, let's speak now to Lord Reg MP of the Ulster Unionist Party. Lord MP is a former leader of the UUP and was a senior negotiator in the peace process which led to the Good Friday Agreement. Lord MP, thank you very much for speaking to us on Bloomberg Westminster. Uh, Now, your party has not taken the same position as the DUP on the protocol, but do you support the British government's approach with this bill? Well, we haven't supported the British government's approach uh, for quite some time because we believe that Fundamentally, uh, what the bill may do is help, or it's conceivable that it could help get free movement of goods from Great Britain to Northern Ireland that have no intention of going into the European Union single market. And we do support that. Uh, We have consistently warned government and other parties um, about what they were doing back in 2019. And you quoted... uh, Jeffrey Donaldson there earlier, but what 
nobody seems to pick up is that when Boris Johnson proposed the border in the Irish Sea, which is what the protocol is, when he proposed that on the 2nd of October 2019, in a small document uh, which he sent to the European Union, on that day on which he produced that, the Democratic Unionist Party endorsed what he produced, describing it as a serious and sensible way forward. Now, we argued strongly against that because we could see that the idea of putting a border in the Irish Sea from a pro-union point of view didn't make sense. Fifteen days later, on the 17th of October 2019, the uh, EU and UK agreed what is now the protocol. So in the 15 days before it became the protocol, Boris Johnson's proposal had the support of the DUP, which means that he was able to say to the European Union, to Dublin, to everybody else, look, I have unionist support for this proposal. Now, the DUP seem to have erased that from their memory and don't seem to have any sense of responsibility for what they did at that particular stage because they held the balance of power in Parliament and they could have stopped this at that stage, in my opinion. Fast forward to where we are today. There is no doubt that there is no pro-union support uh, for what for the position that we are currently in. And bearing in mind that my party uh, supported remaining in the European Union, not because we're all Europhiles, but because we went to see David Cameron in February 2016 and came away from that meeting convinced that the UK government had no pro- realistic proposal or plan for how to deal with Northern Ireland in circumstances where the UK left the European Union. So we anticipated a lot of this. It was well known and it was well trailed in advance the consequences of an ill-thought-through removal of us from the European Union because we are the only part of the UK that had a land border. So common sense tells you, does it not, that you need special arrangements. And I believe there is a proposal on the table which could go a long way to resolving these issues, but it needs to be done by negotiation. Lord Lord MP, would it be fair to say that there are some... So some upsides to the the current arrangement. We speak to business groups who say that it, it is an opportunity to be both part of the EU uh, and the UK markets. And Northern Ireland is the only part of the UK which 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 has that special place. Well, I'd, I'd hear that argument, and of course, as a former economy minister, I can uh, agree with you that, that there is. But bearing in mind, before we left the EU union, we had uninterrupted access to all of the EU market and all of the UK market. So. All, all that brings us back is to the status quo ante, if you like. But yes, I, I can see that point uh, very clearly. Uh, so, but some businesses are doing extremely well. Others are struggling to, with their supply chains. And it's a mixed picture. Um, but what I'm going to suggest to you as a way ahead is that both the common ground between the European Union and the UK government is their support for the Good Friday Agreement. They say it should be protected in all its dimensions. Mm. Now, the one interesting fact is that nobody is looking at the agreement, its institutions, or its structures as a way of finding a solution. And I'm going to suggest to you what we might do. First of all, I agree that it should be made illegal for the territory of the UK to be used 
for the export of unqualified goods into the European market. I fully accept that. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I, we're suggesting that the UK should indemnify the European Union, should on on appropriate goods get into their market. Thirdly, we should uh, devolve some powers from Westminster to Stormont to give Stormont a license to effectively operate and the um, what would would become an amended protocol uh, on behalf of the United Kingdom. The group, we would set up a cross border body or administer or a, mm-hmm. alter an existing one with the Republic by treaty, and we already have six of these. Um, and that body would be there to monitor, to educate, uh, to report any wrongdoing that it would see okay. to the authorities. That would bring in the North-South institutions, which are part of the Good Friday Agreement, and the East-West institutions, giving, uh, helping to end the democratic deficit in Northern Ireland, and hopefully giving the Republic confidence that its market yeah. was not going to be flooded with inappropriate un- goods. But that requires also having a functioning Stormont administration and the DUP have said it that does. they want the, the protocol to essentially be scrapped for them to do that. Is is one a price worth paying for the other? Everyone seems to agree that restoring Stormont is the priority, but does giving the DUP what they want, is that not a price worth paying? The government has no intention of scrapping the protocol in its entirety. Um, they've said so publicly a couple of weeks ago, the minister responsible, James Cleverly, in the Foreign Office, appeared before a committee of the House of Lords that deals with the protocol. And I asked him, and I'm quoting, uh, I asked him, was it fair to say that what the government were intending to do uh, was, to amend, was to introduce measures, but it didn't mean the protocol would be ended? And he agreed with me. So the, the government is not trying to scrap the protocol. To get changes, we need treaty changes, not a unilateral action alone by the UK government. And treaty change can only be brought about by negotiation. And just on the politics, um, the, the UUP lost a seat in the recent uh, Assembly elections. A lot of parties, a lot of voters in Northern Ireland turning to the alliance. Do you uh, f- fear for the unity of, of, of the unionist vote? Well, obviously, uh, we, we lost a seat very narrowly. And nobody wants to win to an election and lose seats. But while Alliance got a lot of extra seats, what difference has it made? But it does it, do, no it does raise questions over the future of, of, you know, unionism. If unionist voters, which it seems to be what happened, have moved to vote for the Alliance as well. Well, they weren't being asked to vote, of course, on the union. And... Um, it's clear to everybody and opinion polls and surveys so show that there is no uh, appetite amongst the electorate to change and for Northern Ireland to leave the union. So, uh, I mean, I, I think you've got to understand that there are many people who aren't support, who don't support unions parties, but that doesn't mean that they aren't, they are prepared to leave the United Kingdom. There is do no you worry about the future of your party? I'm sorry, do you worry about the future well, of your party, given your, your central place in, in unionism to this point? Well, obviously, uh, we made a lot of sacrifices to get us to where we are, but sometimes in politics, that's what you have to do. Uh, I, I would say that we're in uh, a lot of trouble at the moment 
in Northern Ireland because parties are more interested in their own survival rather than taking a strategic view in the long term. We believe that in the long term, it is better for the Union to have Northern Ireland as a settled place at peace with itself. And that was the whole rationale behind the Good Friday Agreement. Unfortunately, government has interfered with the agreement and has changed it uh, since it was passed by referendum in 1998, and those changes have not helped. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's take a look now at what else is making news in the world of politics. Bloomberg's Leanne Garrens joins us in studio. Leanne, Scotland's First Minister set to make an announcement about a second independence referendum later. What do we know? So she's going to talk, um, have a speech in Holyrood later today, Stephen. That's what we know. And expecting Nicola Sturgeon to set out a route map, including how she'll overcome any potential obstacles in the way for NDREF2. Now, we all know the biggest problem is that it is unlikely the UK government will will grant consent for the vote. And remember, all the way back in 2014, when I was a very young journalist, there was an independence referendum. We stayed up so late for those results. And obviously, people chose against independence at that time. But now we've heard from the Scottish National Party MSP, Fiona Hulslop. And as she says, a lot has changed since back then. Believe it or not, during the 2014 referendum, the no side actually argued, don't worry, Boris Johnson will never be prime minister. But hey, look what's happened. So have things changed since 2014? Brexit and Boris Johnson are two key factors. That's the SNP's Fiona Hislop there speaking. Another story you've been looking at, um, Leanne, as well. Fresh strikes could be on the horizon. Yet more strikes. What can you tell us? I know, I feel like we've heard a lot about strikes, haven't we? And they've affected all of us in many ways. But now some doctors are threatening action if their demands of a 30% pay rise are not met. Ballot papers are also being sent to more than 115,000 royal mail workers. Meanwhile, it's a second day of walkouts for criminal barristers in both England and Wales. Remember, we spoke about that yesterday. They are calling for better legal aid, funding and also support. But Minister Chris Phillips says the government cannot give everyone more money. Take a listen. Imagine hypothetically, we say tomorrow, everybody in the whole economy gets a 9% pay rise, right, which is essentially what these strikes are asking for. If we did that, all that would happen is prices would then jump up by another 9% the day afterwards because companies would have to raise prices in order to pay those wages. Chris Phillips. I was told by Stephen Carroll sitting over here. And remember last week, Stephen, in UN, we saw the worst rail strikes in over 30 years, once again in this row over pay. And today, the Telegraph reports on the governor of the Bank of England, that's Andrew Bailey, really facing mutiny over staff pay. So also right here on Threadneedle Street. And that's because staff at the Bank of England are to demand a major pay rise in the face of surging inflation. We've heard a lot about the 
winter of discontent. Could this be the summer of discontent? Lots of people saying it kind of relates to things we saw during the 70s. But I guess this is all slowly unfolding. And of course, teachers could also be going on strike too. Mm, echoes of the 1970s. Thanks, uh, Leanne Gerin. So let's stay with that subject now because we've got some analysis by Bloomberg Economics now that a 7% pay rise for public sector workers would cost the government £14 billion a year. Really interesting uh, bit of research. Boris Johnson has been urging departments to be cautious with pay increases. He says we need to avoid triggering, triggering a wage price spiral. But the issue doesn't look likely to go away anytime soon, with the Bank of England predicting inflation could accelerate to 11% later this year. Joining us is Jamie Rush, Bloomberg's chief European economist. Uh, Jamie, thank you very much for being with us. Talk us through what your research found then in this area of a public sector pay rise. It's, it's basic arithmetic, really. It's just looking at what it costs the government to hire a person um, or have a person on, on the payroll. Um, and, and, and therefore, you know, if, if you have a, a 7% rise or a 5% rise, what that means for the cost. And so what, what we saw is that if you, if you hike, um, hike pay by 7%, like the rail workers want, for example, um, then that's going to cost an extra £8 billion on top of what they've already budgeted for pay increases this year. And the thing is that, as we've heard from the government, if anything is going to be offered above 3%, then the departments that are offering it have got to find efficiencies from elsewhere. And so one place they're going to be looking is headcount. So we, we calculated that if you, if you do a 7% rise and you try and meet that cost by cutting the overall payrolls, then you're going to lose 190,000 people from public sector jobs. Just talk us through the dangers of a, a 1970s wage price spiral and would it be fair to point out that this is much less of a problem uh in the public sector because of because of what uh, what teachers and nurses do and, and the fact that we don't we don't pay for them i, I mean i think it's completely right i mean the, the government because all this stuff is consumed it was free at the point of consumption there's no there's no pass through to prices uh from from higher public sector pay um i, th- I think probably where so, I mean, in, in that sense, there's, there's zero risk, really, of, of creating a, a wage price spiral because there's no price. Um, I think for the, there's probably a, a bit of an influence on, on the national psyche, which is much harder to quantify the impact of that. But if I'm, uh, you know, the public sector has to compete with the private sector on, on hiring. So there's a, you're, kind of, you're creating some competition for the private sector by raising pay in the public sector makes it more attractive. Um, and also... Just the signal that sends that now is a good time to negotiate on negotiate pay. That's something that public private sector workers might might take on as well. But I mean, I think really it's just it, it's a second order problem. Um, it's not it's not something I'd expect to trigger a, a spiral like you described. How much of of a hit is fourteen billion pounds for the exchequer if they, if they were to pay pay rises of that scale? I mean, you know, can you give us a context as to how much that would actually, you know, impact on the the government finances? Sure. I mean, it's it's not huge. So if you look at departmental spending overall, it's around about £400 billion. Um, So it's, you know, as a share of it, it's only a percent or two percent of the the overall cost. Um, So it is small. I think it it adds up over time, though, doesn't it? So if if you do a pay rise now... Um, you're not going to cut pay next year. So the, the, the cost will sort of accumulate over time. So, you know, the 7 billion, 14 billion will, will you know, accumulate over five years. Um, 
personally, you know, it's, it's relatively affordable um, now. It's but you know, it is in the context of of efforts to cut spending elsewhere as well. So it's it's all it's all balancing a trade off, isn't it? And Jamie, just talk us through the other side of the equation, the the, the inflation part of the equation, the, the question on everybody's lips. The Bank of England says inflation's heading towards eleven percent later this year. What are your latest forecasts at Bloomberg Economics? Yeah, I mean, they're actually fairly similar. I mean, we're slightly below the bank um, at about 10.5% as peak inflation rate. Um, but, you know, the, the thing is that what separates the UK from other countries is that you have this delayed impact on um, on inflation from, from the slow pass to regulated gas prices. So it means that the inflation overshoot has actually been a bit smaller than it might otherwise have been up until this point, but now it's going to be with us for another, you know, six months to a year. So we, while other countries like Germany or France might see inflation start to dip sort of towards the beginning of next year, that's not going to be the case really in the UK. It's going to stay very high for, for an extended period. Coming back to the issue of pay, I mean, how do, do pay settlements in the private sector compare um, to the public sector in the UK at the moment, given that we're seeing so many rounds of industrial action in different sectors, are, are they rising faster? I mean, so I think if you look at the latest regular pay numbers, they're growing about 4% year over year. So it's, it's not, it's, you know, it's fast. And we think that for inflation to settle at target, pay gains needs to be about 3 to 3.5%. So it is, um, it, it, is a bit, it is a bit high. And there is clearly some pressure there um, pushing up on, on wage gains later on as, you know, as we go through this, this sort of the, this summer. But, you know, by the time we get to the end of the year, when the fuller impact of the squeeze on incomes from the, the war in Ukraine and, and so on is, is, is felt, then there is going to be some heat taken out of the labour market. There aren't going to be quite so many job vacancies uh, going. And therefore, we do expect that this pay surge will sort of moderate over the coming six months to a year. And Jamie, the labour market has been a really fascinating story, hasn't it, this year? It's very unusual to be going into a downturn, a downturn with inflation and so much pressure on the labour market. It's just been so tight, hasn't it? Are there any signs of, of that starting to cool as the economy slows down? Not quite yet. I mean, normally the labour market takes a little bit longer to, to reflect developments in the economy. Um, so, you know, you have a slowdown in in demand, like in, in growth in the economy, and then it takes a little bit of time for that to feed through to, to staffing decisions. So I would expect it to come a little bit later, but it will come eventually. You know, the, as you say, the economy is slowing, um, and we're expecting that there will be a, a slight inflection point in um, in unemployment over the over the coming sort of six months to a year. Jamie, one other big item on the the government budget is the increase in the pension, which of course is going to be guaranteed, we're told, by government now. How does that compare to the idea of raising public sector salaries? And it's it's comparable in, in terms of its size, in terms of its cost, uh, the the uplift to ten percent from, from seven and a half. Um so it's it it's it is slightly it is slightly different in terms of the way people think about pay settlements, what people are thinking about in the public in the private sector, I should say. Um, you know, a pension doesn't feel like pay rises. So if you increase the pension, it doesn't feel quite the same. Mm. Um, and so it doesn't really give people an incentive, or doesn't make people feel particularly want to try and push for higher pay in, in their in their jobs. Um, you know, there's a lot of evidence that says that people, when they're thinking about their consumption choices and things, they, they don't have very good visibility into their pensions. They think much more about um, 
and uh, the actual pay they receive. And Jamie, uh, on the question of the big R, what is your forecast for if and when the UK will go into a recession? And will it be uh, a, a small, a slight technical recession, or are we thinking about something rather worse than that? Well, at the moment, we're, we're expecting a contraction in the second quarter, and we think that a, a kind of a large or a deep recession is probably going to be avoided. Um, but it's, it's still going to feel like a recession, I mean, in, in the sense that the impacts that the, the war is having on people's real incomes, their spending power, uh, and, you know, and, and uncertainty... Mm-hmm. All of those things are adding up to a hit, which is quite similar to what a, in fact, even worse than a, a typical recession might deliver. So okay. even, you know, if you think about what happened in the financial crisis, this is sort of similar on incomes. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.